Adam will catch up with you. The rest of you have your Bibles. I'd like for you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 8 is where we find ourselves today. Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at the first four verses in Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> There's a story told about a king in Africa who had a, a really close friend that just did everything that, that, that he did with him. They, they grew up together. They were best friends. And anywhere the king went, his, his friend went. And everything that the king did, his friend got the opportunity to do as well. The friend had a habit of, of looking at every situation that happens in life as being, it didn't matter if it was positive or negative, he always saw it as something very positive, and he would mark remark in a way that said, oh, this is good. It didn't matter what it was, this is good. And, and the, the king, you know, he was amazed that his friend always saw things from that perspective. One day the king and his friend, they were out uh, hunting, and his friend had loaded the guns for the king. And as they got out there to prepare their guns for the king, that apparently the loaded weapon the king had, by the way the guy his friend had loaded it, somehow it blew up in his hands and his face as the king was shooting it. Examining the situation, notice that it had blown off the king's thumb. And his friend said, well, this is good. <laughs> King was furious with his friend. And so when he got back, he had his friend thrown in jail. And he didn't talk to him anymore. He just left it there. About a year later, the king is out again. He went on a hunting trip in an area that he knew that he probably should not have been because of a neighboring tribe. And anyway, in the process, he got captured by cannibals. They had tied him to the stake and were preparing the logs for the fire as they were about to uh, roast him for their evening meal when one of the cannibals noticed that he was missing a thumb. And they decided, this is not what we want. Because part of their thing was they, they would not eat anything that was not whole. And so the king, because he was missing his thumb, was then released and he went back. And on his way back, he came to realize, you know what? Because of what happened a year ago, which I blamed my friend for and have treated him so harshly, if, if what he had done had not blown my thumb off, these cannibals would have eaten me. So he went to his friend and he told him the story of how he had been captured on this hunting trip, how he had to tie him up, and, and it was because of his thumb that, that he was now alive. And, and his friend said, No. Now this is good. The king didn't understand. What do you mean? Now this is good. He says, you realize that if, if I had not gone on you with that hunting trip a year ago and your finger would not have been blown off, I would have been with you on this trip and they would have eaten both of us. Now this is good. And it is good. You know, sometimes in the most severe, disastrous events in our life, Good can come from that. Now, I know that's difficult to understand, but but realistically, it can. Just like my earpiece. Disastrous, but good will come because I will prevail. So, so we have the story of, of 
something awful can transpire in someone's life, and somebody else can turn around and say, oh, but think of the good that's going to come as a result of that. That's hard for us to see at times. Well, this kind of situation has taken place within the church there in Jerusalem. We just have gone through chapter 7, and we've discovered there in chapter 7 that Stephen has given this wonderful message of salvation out to the people and was confronted by the leaders of the Sanhedrin that, that what he is preaching is blasphemous because he's saying that Jesus is in equality equal to God and so they are now going to stone him as they drag him outside the city and they proceed to kill him. And that's where our passage of scripture this morning begins. They have just killed Stephen outside the city gates of Jerusalem. A man by the name of Saul, one of the Pharisees, is standing there, holding the coats and giving testimony to what the witness had said against him, and the death was legit. As a result of all this, the church finds itself in great persecution. The persecution was so great that a lot of the people who were following Jesus at this time, they, they fled Jerusalem and they took off. Because now the Pharisees are, are telling anybody, everybody, go get them, drag them in. We're going we're gonna to do whatever we can to stop this message of Jesus and, and, and his, his teachings to not change people. And so they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea. And even up into Samaria they went. So let's listen what happens here. Chapter 8, verse 1. We discover that the apostles, the 12 men, they stay behind. They allowed themselves to be put in harm's way while everybody else scattered. Listen to what it says. Saul was in hearty agreement in putting him to death. That's Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Everybody else in the church, they start fleeing. Now, if you remember, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men were baptized that day. And since that period of time, there have been other hundreds on this day, a thousand. The church is growing. Now persecution breaks out. But you have to understand, Jerusalem is not just a small little town. Jerusalem is a city of millions. And so those who become Christians, now they're running. Except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. It tells us everybody else is gone, but you see, the reason the apostles did not leave was because they realized that in order for the for the mission of the church to be accomplished, they had to face the opposition that stood in the way of them accomplishing the task that God had set out for them. <coughs> I know sometimes the church talks a lot about commitment. Sometimes we get tired of hearing about commitment. You want me to be committed. You want me to be committed to this, committed to that. And my commitment level keeps going higher and higher. And, and I don't know if I can commit that much. But if we don't take just a, a hint of a note from, from the pages of these men in their lives. And look at the commitment that they made to Christ. 
I think we might begin to understand the importance of what it means to be committed. I'm reading a book right now by David Platt called Radical. Oh my goodness. Talk about commitment. God has called us into a relationship with him that, that has no boundaries. You can't say, I will go with you this far, and that's it. You've got to be willing to go with him beyond what people say, don't go any further than this. And that's what these apostles were doing. These men would have done anything, including lose their lives for the price of telling other people about how to find their lives and salvation in Jesus. Today we're not asked to necessarily to die for the cause of Christ, but the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that if anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. James Baldwin, who's an American poet, he wrote this, nothing can be faced until it's changed, and nothing can be changed until it's faced. Ah, that's very true. We're, we're never going to have an opportunity to move forward in life until we actually understand who we are and, and what we're doing and we begin to know what God wants us to do in life and then face that head on and go. We won't ever change things. People are always saying that somebody ought to do something about this or about that, but they never realize that they can be that somebody. You know what you all ought to do? I first had for 30 plus years in ministry. You know, you need to get somebody to do this. If somebody were able, and, and I want to turn around and say, well, aren't you somebody? I mean, that's a wonderful idea. Go do it. And so the disciples understood that, that we've got to stand for this and we've got to move forward. And so they were willing to face the opposition and everyone else had left the region to escape the persecution of those who classified themselves as followers of the way, the, the way of Christ, but the apostles stayed there to further the ministry. Now, now, the second thing I think we need to see in this brief little four verses here in Acts chapter, one, chapter 8 is that notice that they buried the dead, they drew strength from one another. So here we have verse 2, it says, Some devout men, devout what? Devout Christian men. Some devout men, they buried Stephen. And they made loud lamentation over him. This they were not doing this in a quiet manner. They wanted everybody in Jerusalem to understand Stephen was killed, unjustly killed, and now they are crying out in the streets in their lamentation, their mourning of him, so that they made a spectacle of what had taken place. Back in 2006, I went to Ukraine, and while I was there, I got to witness a funeral transpire one day there in the streets of Inakiva. They had, they had some people up front with these big brooms sweeping the street uh, because there were some factories nearby, steel factories and stuff, and, and at nighttime they would really pour it on. And by the morning time, you'd wake up, and the streets and the cars and everything was covered with this gray dust. And people would be out cleaning things. Well, they were out sweeping the street, 
And behind them was a coffin of an individual carried on the shoulders of about six or eight fellows. And there were other people who were as loud as could be, crying out and, and mourning and weeping and wailing and, and just making it as they're walking slowly through the streets, letting everybody know that somebody had died. And people were coming out of their houses and watching them go. These fellows, they are burying Stephen, but they're not burying him quietly. They're making sure everybody knows. Now, notice it says some devout men. These were followers of Christ. These guys did not leave the city. They stuck around. And they're willing to make it known that Stephen, their friend, follower of Jesus was dead. And it's going to create more problems. But they're going to stick it out no matter what. And so some of these devout men, they bury their friend. And before the apostles continue the mission that they had to deal with the present. And that's really where we are at times. One of their own had just lost his life and they needed to do something about this. So there's this brotherly love that that they have for Stephen, and he's a man that we told, we're told was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. We see that in, in Acts chapter 6. And he's an example of what a man of God ought to be like, willing to stand up for the cause of Christ and to boldly speak to those around him, even if it means that they're going to kill him. So there's a lot of love for this man, Stephen. Before they go on with the mission, they had to deal with their emotions and to bring closure to what just happened to him. And so they do. They bury him. Sometimes we need to put closure on the passing of our loved ones. We can't just ignore it. And we've got to take time to, to bury the dead so that we realize that life is brief. And we only have but a few short days in which we can make a difference. And for the Christian, it means that we've got to do something today because tomorrow may not come for some. We've got to close out the ending of a faithful life and, and memorialize them. Now, it almost goes contrary to what Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 9 when some fellows had come up and one wanted to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He said to do this. Another guy says, well, I want to go. And he says, but I've got to bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's almost contradictory, isn't it? Shouldn't they have just not let the dead bury Stephen? While they went on with the message? Is that not what Jesus is trying to get across in Luke 9? And now Luke is writing to us in Acts chapter chapter 8. He's telling, no, that's not it. There is an important message that those who are faithful to God, we need to honor in this way. We need to close out the things of the past and move forward. And they use this as a moment to proclaim the kingdom of God. Not to secretly hide it away. The apostles not only buried Stephen, but they also wept greatly over him, putting themselves in harm's way and bearing their dead and finding strength in one another. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we notice that those people who were scattered away from Jerusalem, they found strength somewhere to continue the mission of the gospel message. Listen what it says. Saul began ravaging the church, 
entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, did you catch that? Saul goes about ravaging the church. Can you imagine if all of a sudden somebody broke through our doors with, with our local police and they start coming after us and dragging us out of here? Would you come back next week? If you, if you notice that there's the police car sitting outside your house, would you go home? I mean, this is the reality of their lives. They had heard that so-and-so was a follower of the way of Jesus. They live over here. And so Saul literally got permission with the local authorities and with the Sanhedrin to go after them. And they would go after house after house. They would reach in. They would grab the men. They would grab the women. And they would literally drag them out, screaming and kicking through the streets, and put them in prison. And if they put up a fight, they might even kill them. Why? Because they chose to believe in Jesus. And even though now many have fled Jerusalem to get out of harm's way, it did not cancel out the effect that it had the word of God of which they had heard. I'm sure that when they got wherever they were headed, those life-changing words of, of Jesus the disciples probably rang out in their ears over and over, and they were compelled them by the Spirit to speak to those new people around them. They probably remember Jesus saying things like, like he said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. They might have heard him when, when he told the woman caught in adultery that he disbanded a guilty bunch of people that were standing around him in John chapter 8. He says, he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Or maybe they remember the words of Peter, James, or John. And, and, and the three original disciples told that Jesus said to them that he was chosen them first. And that they were, He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Paul Harvey, he once said that too many Christians are no longer fishermen but keepers of the aquarium. Christians, there are too many Christians who are no longer fishermen, but keepers of the aquarium. I think Paul Harvey was right. I think the church, especially the church in America, has settled for watching the aquarium rather than trying to put more fish in. Was the church in Jerusalem becoming a fish aquarium? I'm going to say yes, it was. Everybody was coming to Jerusalem to become a Christian. And they weren't going anywhere. But do you remember what Jesus had commanded them to do? There in Matthew chapter 28, he, he said, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all neighborhoods in Jerusalem. Right? of all nations. There in the very beginning book of Acts, he's ascending into heaven, he says, you're going to make my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they were. But what about Judea? What about Samaria? 
What about the ends of the earth? We got Jerusalem. And I think there was something happening with the church, and instead of being obedient to taking the message of the gospel of Jesus around the world with them, they all stayed right there and they enjoyed the fellowship that they had with the body of believers, and they were one in heart and one in mind and one in everything they were doing. And it was like this great commune that was all coming together, and God finally says, You're not doing what I said. Persecution breaks out. Go. He said, and make disciples. So this martyrdom of Stephen, in essence, it, it constitutes a watershed of the gospel message of the Christian life out of Jerusalem. So from Jerusalem, all the, the message of Jesus now is flowing out into the rest of the world. And persecution pushes it and moves it forward to make a difference around the world. They probably heard about the trouble, though, that was still happening in Jerusalem because messages might get out and send out that, that the people that are still there are facing this great persecution that so-and-so is now in jail and so-and-so now, they got beat up and they, they lost their life and somebody else is now sick and their doctors are trying to take care of them and, and, and somebody, their business burned down and somebody else lost their house. Now these two couples, uh, his wife is leaving him because he's, he's become a Jesus father. They're hearing the story. They see what's happening, and, and they know the trouble is there, and they, they've heard how their brothers and sisters back home are being destroyed because of their faith, and they're losing their life because of their faith. And most importantly, they probably heard the voice that once was on Calvary and was crucified. They said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men The more we lift Jesus up before the people around us in the world, the more they are going to be drawn to him. We're the ones who have to lift him up. So those who were scattered, they realized it is now up to us. You see, it wasn't the apostles who went out and they began to preach the news. It was the normal person that just went back home or went to go visit relatives in another town or another city or another country. They're the ones, just the normal people who had found the message of Jesus. They're the ones that are spreading the gospel message everywhere they go. It wasn't the preachers and the teachers and the pastors and the prophets and all. It's just the people. They're the ones who are transforming the lives of the communities in which they're moving to. We're so familiar with the epistles of Paul, the letters that Paul, the apostle, has written that we forget that he was mean, he was brutal, he was vicious, he was ravaging the church, destroying the followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 22, Paul says this about himself. Listen to what he says in Acts 22, verse 4 through 5. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, and also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From then I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Now you have to realize Damascus is not just a little hop, skip, and a jump across town. Damascus is way up north. Up in what we classify now Syria. And he's going to head way up because he's heard that there are people up there now that have become Christians and he's going to go get them and drag them all the way back down to Jerusalem to put them in prison. 
Saul was vicious. But this persecution scattered the Christian community and they fled the cities to homes and families of friends throughout Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But the twelve apostles stayed behind. They stayed there for the fact that they knew something. Gamaliel, if you remember, Gamaliel, who was this great teacher of Saul, he was also one of the Pharisees there in the Sanhedrin, and he was very wise in the things that he understood was taking place. And so we see that as the Pharisees had gathered together, they were trying to debate what they would do at the time when they had Peter and John there before them. And Gamaliel declares this in Acts chapter 5, verse 38-39. He said, in this present case, speaking about the followers of Jesus and the messages they're taking after his death, he says, in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, the apostles. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. In other words, these guys are just going to peter out. Get it, Peter? They're going to end. They're going to. It's good. It's not. It, if they have just created this, if it's of men's decision, it's going to be. It'll, it'll, it'll end in time. So don't worry about it. But listen what he says. But if what they're talking about and what they're doing is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So the apostles have some safety. Not necessarily the church, but these 12 men whom they recognized had been with Jesus, they kind of got a little bit of freedom there in Jerusalem because they don't have to worry about the harassment personally. Because Camellia has just convinced the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, leave them alone for a little while. If what they're doing isn't really of God, it's, it's going to end. But if it's really of God, there's nothing you're going to do to stop it. So, the relig religious leaders had agreed to this, but there's no protection for the ordinary believer. So the guy who's the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the housewife, the house husband, whatever you want to call them, they don't have this kind of protection. So they've got to flee. See, I think we need to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit, His power, just as they did back then. But somehow we have forgotten to allow the Spirit to empower us when we're talking to other people and sharing our faith. Now, you might be able to do some things like you, you can probably build a, a new car in 30 to 45 days if you've got the right kind of factory equipment and stuff to do that. But people need personal attention. They need hours of it takes patience to teach people how to read the, the Bible. It takes patience on how to, to feed and nourish their souls and apply the teachings of Jesus and the behavior. So what has happened to the church today is this. If we're able to tag the title evangelism on a word, it, 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 it makes whatever thing that we're doing evangelistic. Here's some examples. Being a good example today in our world is called example evangelism. It's lifestyle evangelism. Just by being a good person, you're, you're having an impact and letting them know that the reason that you live this way is because you're a believer in God. And so that's lifestyle evangelism. All right. Then there's, there's serving people that are lost. It's called 
servant evangelism. We see that, that people are doing things. They're going to homeless shelters. They're going to soup kitchens. They're giving of their time here and there. And they're serving because Christ wants us to serve one another in love. And so that's servant evangelism. There's nothing wrong with that. Then there's this idea of building relationships with lost people. It's called friendship evangelism. I'm going to befriend these people who are going to hell. And eventually, because of our friendship, they're going to want to know why is why, why am I treating you this way? What is it about me that's so different? And then they're going to want to know about Jesus. So that's friendship evangelism. Then there's another one that, that it's, it's inviting people to church, the special meetings, and we call that church evangelism. Hey, you need to come to my church. You need to come to this event that we've got. You need, so that's, that's the church evangelism. But most here would agree that just adding the, the word fellowship to something does not mean that the actually biblical fellowship is applied. We can't do the same thing with evangelism. That is not what evangelism is all about. In all those things, being good to people, serving people, developing friendships, inviting the church, all those things are good, but that is not evangelism. You need to be a good example, but you need to share the gospel. Being a good example is not just hoping that they might want to know why you're that way, but you be the good example and you share the gospel as to why you're doing that. I mean, it's good to shine our light in the lost, dark world. It's important to be a light in this world, and it's someone that we are commanded by the Lord to do. So very faithful Christians will do it, but it does not replace the need for us to confess the name of Jesus Christ before men. Your example is not the gospel. The words of Christ, the good news about his entering into this world, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that's the gospel message. Do good all that you want, but share the gospel message. The second thing is this. You can do all your acts of service in our community, around the world, but share the gospel. I mean, you can give yourself 30 hours a week doing things to help the community, giving of your time and your energy, going to the nursing homes, going to the pet cemeteries, or whatever it is that you're cleaning and picking up flowers on, and doing all these wonderful acts of service to make our world a beautiful place and helping other people. But if only doing the service act and you're not sharing the gospel message, you're not being evangelistic. Do your acts of service, do those wonderful things in our community and around the world, but share the gospel. Because if we're just doing wonderful things and we're acting good and we're doing this, we're no different than the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons because they're doing good things. They've got good behavior, but they're not sharing the true gospel message. I want to challenge you and ask yourself this. How many non-Christian friends do I have? It's been interesting that I have discovered throughout years of, of ministry that when somebody becomes a Christian, and if they're the first person in their group of friends that become a Christian, either that group of friends eventually become Christians as well, and so now we're all Christians, and we lose our sense of evangelism because all my friends now are Christians. Or I abandon those friends and I make new friends who are Christians. You see, you need to be around people. Now, granted, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals, right? But that's not what I'm saying. You need to guard yourself in your heart because it is the wellspring of life. You need to make sure that nobody changes your passion for Christ, but you need to be around people 
who are not saved so that you can introduce the gospel message to them so that they can find salvation. You've got to have people that you can influence for the kingdom of Christ. And the only way you're going to do that is to make friends with people in this world. Don't abandon them. Don't leave them because now you've got the church family. See, that ends evangelism. And we're supposed to make friends with people in this world to introduce them to Jesus. So you can have your non-Christian friends, but you've got to share the gospel message. See, building relationships is important. But if you're not building the relationship based on opportunity, introduce them to salvation. Why build that relationship? The fourth thing I think, we, we need to invite people to church. And I know some of you have done that recently. You've invited people to Wednesday night or Sunday mornings or whatever else. And, and I applaud you. Please keep inviting people to church. But don't invite them to church so that I will sit down with them and lead them to Christ. Don't invite them to church or to a Wednesday night and say, well, you're going to learn about this on Wednesday night because that's where... You see, the church gathers. We gather here not to necessarily win people to Jesus. Not during this time. We gather together to worship God. That's why we're here. What you do outside these walls is what you do to win people to Jesus. And once you have introduced them to Jesus, now they want to have a passion to understand what it is to worship Him. That's when you bring them in. You, you, know, you can't expect that they're going to come here and somebody else is going to lead them to Christ. You're supposed to lead them to Christ. So invite them all you want, but share the gospel with them at that point. You can do it. It's a simple thing. Jesus even says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. So if the gospel message is something that even a child can understand, then we as adults, as teenagers, should be able to understand as well. And just the simple faith that we have can introduce and lead somebody else. Now, now you may need to have something a little bit deeper of understanding. You may say, I don't quite get it. Let me introduce you to a friend of mine who can help us. Invite them all that you want. I love it when you invite people. But don't invite them here so that I or somebody else can lead them to Christ. That's your job. And it's my job to encourage you and to celebrate with you when that happens. We've got to be people who take the gospel message with us in all and in the midst of struggles and hardships and persecutions, that's when the church scatters and grows. We don't let difficulties be a negative thing. This is good. Even in the midst of the hardships, God can use for His glory. <clears throat> Now, as we have kind of redefined, hopefully, for you what evangelism is, I pray that it doesn't take persecution of the church and her souls 
ever did in Jerusalem because they had become aquarium nations. But I pray that you allow the opportunities in life, the people you work with, what you go to school with, what you, what you meet at the restaurant, what you have over at your house for the football game, wherever it is that you're around people, the friends, the co-workers, the neighbors, even the enemies. Use those moments to share the gospel message. You know, we have been told way too long that our faith is personal. It's private. It is not. Don't buy into that lie. Your Christian faith is not private. It is not personal. However, it does privately impact you and it makes a personal change in your life, but it is something that you are commanded by Christ and as you're going about in this world, you are to make disciples. We are to call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. And we are supposed to instruct people by a simple way in which we live, in which we breathe, faith, but it can be the same thing for them. Taking the gospel message with you does everything. In the way you act, in the way you serve, in the way that you develop relationships, in the way that you invite people to both places with you, but share the gospel message. And that's what the people here did. Once they were kicked out of Jerusalem through this persecution, everywhere they went, they took the gospel message of the kingdom of God with them, and the church exploded. Not in the bad sense. It changed the world. And we can do the same thing. We're going to have a for you.